and welcome to the Dine One Six, a food podcast about Sacramento, where we talk to anyone working in the food industry to give you an idea of what it's like behind the scenes of your favorite places to go out and eat in our city. Neil, it's been a little bit of a hiatus for us. We finally got the hot chicken episode out that we hope everyone enjoyed, and then a replay last week all about home gardening. How you doing? I'm doing good. It's good to be back. I'm uh, happy to be back behind the microphone and talking with new people about what's going on in the Sacramento food industry. How are you, Ben? I've been good, yeah. Got over my bout of COVID and back into the studio, and we've got a bunch of interviews lined up with people. I will tell you something that's been bothering me a little bit, and that is... I haven't gone out for a good burger in a while. Have you had a good burger in Sacramento recently? There's lots of good burgers. I'm not saying that, but I just, I feel like I need to go out and just get a good burger. I agree with you. I have not had gone out for a good burger in a while myself. Uh, I know there's a few good ones in town. One of my personal favorites is actually out of the uh, Pangea Beer Garden over in uh, Curtis Park. Have you ever had that one? I have not had that one, no. It is a fantastic burger. They actually, if I recall correctly, I believe they won the Sack Burger Battle, both Judges and People's Choice Award in 2018. And I think they've won the Judges Choice Award two other times other than that. So that's four total titles for their burger. Dang, that's high praise. Uh, that's a very high praise. When are we going over there? I mean, it's 12 o'clock right now, right? <laughs> it is, right? It is, right? Oh, it's Monday, though. It Nothing's is Monday. open on Monday. Yeah. And you know what's funny? I've actually tried to go to them on a Monday, and this has happened before. But good news is, we're actually going to bring them to you. So we are actually going to bring on the head chef for Pangea, Chef Scott McCumber, and we're going to ask him a few questions about Pangea and their burger. Yeah, Scott's journey is really interesting pretty atypical story for someone who's a head chef at a pretty well-known spot in Sacramento. He was at Taylor's Kitchen before Pangea. So as we mentioned in the interview, he's been the head chef at a couple real kind of flagship establishments here in Sacramento. And you'll hear his story, how he got there is pretty interesting. It's definitely a lot different than most executive chefs that you run into. Yeah. I'm looking forward to you guys hearing it and let us know what you think at the end. Yeah, so without any more introduction, here is our conversation with Scott McCumber, executive chef at Pangea Beer Cafe. All right, well, Scott McCumber, thanks for being here on the Dine One Six. It's great to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. So, Scott, we almost always open every episode by just asking, what did food mean to you growing up? What was food like in your household as a kid? So, I grew up in a like a big Italian family, like that's kind of the background, but, uh, I have no, no sisters, no nothing. So I got brothers. It's all guys. Okay. Um, so I got, I got pulled into the kitchen at a young age and it was the one time I got to spend with my mom. A lot of the times, you know, with two other brothers, it's, you know, time split. So if I jumped in the kitchen to help my mom make dinner, or, you know, we like to bake cakes together and stuff like that. It was, it was quality time for me. And it's something I've always cherished. And I do it with my daughter too. Cause I wanted to remember that when she's older, like I did with my mom. Yeah, that's great. My kids ping pong too because we cook a lot at home, and so my older daughter will jump in, and that's it's interesting you say that because right now my younger son in particular wants to help every night in the in the kitchen. It's just like he wants everyone else out, and he gets to spend time with mom or dad in the kitchen. And he's five, so that's <laughs> well. Now, now my daughter's eleven. She doesn't do that as much. A lot of times, I'll come home and there's cookies for me and stuff like that. Oh, so nice. while I'm at work, she'll get in the kitchen and make cookies and stuff like that, and it's kind of fun coming home and sweet cookies. It's like nine o'clock at night. Everybody's yeah. asleep and I just get a cup of milk and some fresh cookies. And, <laughs> and I know she made them or, or brownies or whatever she feels like making. She's she's really good at it. So, um, But we like to bake cakes together and she likes to do all the fancy decorations and stuff like mm. that. Stuff I'm not used to, but we're having fun with like fondants and stuff like that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. 
Did, what, did your mom have a specialty cake? Did she have something she made in particular on special we, occasions? Yeah, we made it was it was just a chocolate cake, and we did boysenberry jam in the middle and homemade whipped cream over the top, and it was our birthday cake. Every one of uh, my brothers and my dad and I, we always had it every year. And she still makes it to this day because it's like the one thing I request. It's oh. like, I want that birthday cake. And I don't oh. make it. I've never showed my wife how to make it or my daughter. It's always like, hey, Mom, you coming over? Bring the birthday cake. And she was Always whips it up for me. Oh, man, that's amazing. <laughs> that's it's, awesome. It's simple, too. It's just the it was nothing special, but it was just always our birthday cake. It's mom's cooking. Yeah. There's yeah. There's something about that. Yeah, there is. We've <laughs> talked about it a million times in here. That even, you, even when you try to recreate it, it's like no. it's never as good. And so I've recreated some of my mom's dishes over the years, but every time I do it, she looks at me, she's like, oh, you had to improve on it, didn't you? You had to do something different. I was like, yeah, it's kind of what I do for a living. I'm like, I'm an actual <laughs> cook for a living. And I go, you you were doing this with three boys running around driving you mad. I go, I, I, I got peace and quiet whenever I cook. So um, she laughs at me now whenever I do it because I'll, I'll make some of her classic dishes and just be like, yeah, that's just my, my meat sauce. This is my marinara sauce. She's just like... <laughs> I hate you and love you at the same time. <laughs> so what are some of the recipes that you've remade of hers? Oh, dude, so Italian, so like the meat sauce or marinara, you know, I've spiced it up, did a little different. One of my favorite things she always made was just, it was a baked fried chicken and mashed potatoes. Mm. But, you know, I've drummed it up, made it better, brined the chicken, you know, do, you know, go through all the steps. So it's just that next level kind of like deliciousness, you know, she was hand mashing all her potatoes and I'm, you know, going through a food mill just to make them smooth and creamy and even better. And she's like, hey, keep, keep doing it to me. And I'm like, yeah, well, I want to, I want to make you happy now with my cooking. Yeah. So, and she loves it. She loves coming over and eating and stuff like that. But that's kind of the fun part is just taking old recipes that my mom always had and making them my own now and and showing my daughter how to do them. So it sounds like you cook a fair amount at home. How much do you cook at home? Because that's often the thing with chefs is they, you know, they cook a lot in the restaurant and then they eat not so well at home because they don't want to cook anything. Before the pandemic, it was all the time. I always tried to figure out a meal prep and stuff, but the pandemic, I was just working so much that I stopped cooking and I had a really horrible kitchen at my house. Uh, we just bought the house and it's this old house that we're trying to remodel. Mm. I just got it remodeled. So now that the kitchen's all brand new and everything's up to spec, I'm at least three to four days a week. I get in my kitchen to cook dinner, usually my two days off. And then uh, I don't work night shifts every day. I try to switch with my Sue. So we both have time to spend with our family. And those two days I usually come home and grab stuff and make something for dinner. If I know I'm going to be busy, I try to meal prep and do all that. But I usually use either Monday or Sunday to make like stocks and stuff like that at home. So keep my freezer full of, uh, you know, all my sauce prep and everything else. So I can just go in and cook. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. What are good. some of the recipes you like to prep for during the week? Mostly like I, I'll like sous vide chicken breast just to have them ready for everything. Like that's my big thing is like my wife's like, why do you have like 12 pieces of chicken sous vide in the fridge? I'm like, because I can make stir fries out of it really quick. We can make sandwiches. We can, I mean, just go through a list of stuff. I can throw it in a cream sauce with some pasta and I can do it quicker and I don't have to sit there and cook the chicken. It's already done. So it's just those little things. I'll make like marinaras and meat sauces early in the week because they'll hold for a couple of days. And then when I get home, I'm not having to spend an hour or two in the kitchen. I can usually get in and out of there about 10 to 15 minutes. Being That's organized awesome. is nice. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, lo I love sous-vide stuff as well. I do yeah. the same thing. I'll cook three or four other things and it's cooked to the exact temperature that I like, ready to go, heat yeah. it up, and it's done. And it's usually better than off the grill anyway. Yeah. Especially chicken breast because chicken yes. breast is just notoriously easy to – I certainly grew up with just like barbecue chicken breast that was just 
shredded sawdust by the time yeah. you, <laughs> and you forgot about it for that extra right. two minutes and now it's just a yep. crust on it that just you exactly can't through. yeah <laughs> so scott how did you first get into the restaurant industry what was your first job so i'm gonna i'm a little different i've only been in for eight years uh, oh wow i'm 43 so i started at about 35 years old at hook and ladder i was in sales and marketing for most of my life I worked for companies like uh, mesa beverage which is a miller brewing house uh, dr pepper snapple I did uh, on-premise sales for a lot of years. And then uh, I got laid off twice in five years by two different companies. And the last time I got laid off, they handed me a, a nice severance check and told me to, that I had my walking papers, but I had six months pay sitting in my hand. And I just did not want to get back into sales. I was way overweight. I'm, I'm still a pretty big guy, but I was 300 plus pounds and, mm. and just miserable and sad. So I joined Le Cordon Bleu, which was a mistake now that I think about it, you know, afterwards. But... I was there for three weeks, four weeks, and uh, I got a job at Hook and Ladder as just volunteering. I didn't even get paid. I was there for a couple months just doing that, there three times a week, just doing prep cook and learning how to cook and learning on the job. But I had that option. I had the money sitting in the account so I can sit for six months. And when somebody quit, they gave me, they hired me right then and there. Now, had you been into cooking prior to, between cooking with your mom and 35 at that time? Yeah, I used cooking as my way to cope with my job. I hated my job, so when I got home, I would open a bottle of wine and just start cooking, and that's how I decompressed from the constant just hell of being in sales. It was my peace of mind. I'd put on loud music and just disappear, and I did it all my life. My wife used to cook when she was younger, but over the years, over these 19 years we've been together, she doesn't cook anymore. She hates the kitchen. She mm. can't handle it anymore. That's because I've been cooking for her all her life because it was a way to decompress and de-stress. And so she's like, why don't you try it? Try it for a year. And if you don't like it, I, I fall back on your degree, go back to sales. And so I jumped at hook and ladder and I've never turned back. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. So that's really interesting. I'm always curious because I, when I was younger, I sort of thought I wanted to be a chef. And then when I got jobs in restaurants, I never worked in the back of house, but I got a job as a busser when I was 16, 17. And we were talking about before, kind of made friends with the kitchen. And I pretty quickly saw that what goes on in a commercial kitchen, in a restaurant kitchen, wasn't necessarily what I enjoyed about cooking at home. So how, you know, you talked about cooking was kind of your de-stressor and oftentimes working in a kitchen, it's the opposite. So how did that transition go? Do you just love food and love the process enough that you fell in love with it? even though it has that stress component or how did that transition go for you? So it's a different stress. It really is because it's compartmentalized. You only have like a two to three hour stress window where it's like you're, you might be moving, putting out plate after plate and you know, tickets keep coming in, but then it's done. Mm. Once those tickets stop and you walk off the line, you don't take anything home with you. There's no, I, I mean, now I'm a head chef. Yeah. I got a little bit more stress at home because of it, but it's not bad. It's not like where, you know, somebody's telling you if you don't, you know, hit your quota this month, you're going to get fired or, you know, you're depending on your commission checks to make up for what you don't make an actual pay in sales where as a cook, you just go in and cook, you go in and cook, you get done, you have a couple drinks with your friends afterwards, you head home and then you do it again. And there's always just an end to it. So every day you can walk away and just be like, all right, tomorrow's going to be a better day or tomorrow's going to be the same day we had today because it was awesome. Yeah. And the stress isn't like, it doesn't eat you up in your head where you're like, I got to do this. I got to do this. It's just like, oh, put out the plate, put out the plate, put out the plate, make sure it looks good, make sure it tastes good. And then you're done. So it, it's just fun to me. It's, it's, and cooking's like a puzzle and I love games and puzzles and stuff. So putting everything together and making it look the same every time is just making the puzzle every time. So I just find joy in it. Yeah. That's cool. Do you enjoy cooking new recipes or relying on your old recipes? Uh, both. 
Both. I, I, I'm always looking for like different things to try and new and, you know, reading different cookbooks and stuff like that. And, you know, I just picked up a fermentation book that I'm going to start trying to go into and do a little bit of this stuff like that. And, you know, I've, I've gone through the whole barbecue. I have a really nice smoker at my house. So I went through all the processes of learning how to do it. I'm not going to say I'm a great, you know, smokehouse guy that can do everything, but you know, that was a process. There's a whole different language to just smoking meat and then pickling. I've done that. I've pickled everything you can think of in different styles and ways and stuff. So I try, I try lots of new stuff, but it's always nice to go back to the classics and cook the stuff I, you know, meat, marinara sauces, meat sauces, make my own handmade spaghettis and that kind of stuff and pasta dishes and stuff. That's what I grew up on. I still love making it, but there's always something fun out there to try. What do people get wrong about Italian food at home? If you could tell someone like, just do this with your marinara or your meat sauce, like what are kind of the, you know, because it's a lot of Italian food is, has a lot of technique, particularly pasta, but you know, sauces, a lot of it is just, it's simple ingredients, right? But I think a lot of people struggle to make it good at home. Let's see. I think the two major things I see people not do, and I still yell at cooks today about some what well, this one is, they don't season their water before they cook their pasta. Mm. Not enough, at least. And I tell people it should taste like the ocean. It should be salty as hell. That's the only way to do it because you're not going to get any flavor in the pasta noodle if you don't do that. When it comes to your meat sauces and stuff, um, I tell a lot of people, I'm like, you, one, it, it's not just meat and onion and tomato. You got to, and basil or whatever herb you feel like doing it. I use carrots and celery and I, I, I grind them up in my meat grinder with my meat. A lot of people don't realize that, but that will really make your meat sauce a lot, your ragus and stuff a lot better if you actually grind your onions and stuff. So you don't actually have these chunks in it. It's a nice smooth sauce with chunks of meat in it and all that stuff. But that's a little more advanced. A lot of people don't have that kind of time to do that kind of stuff. But I try, I'm like, you should add some more veggies. You should add some more herbs and make sure you're salting and seasoning. Because, I mean, seasoning is the biggest thing most home cooks don't know how to do. When you go with recipes, like you were talking about with the ragu sauce, do you like to kind of try and do new different things? Or do you like to stay with the traditional recipe? Um, I mean, I'll do a little bit of both. So, like, I mean, my traditional recipe, I grind, you know, beef, pork, if I have the money, some some veal as well. Do a triple meat like ragu, which I love. I've done it with other things. I've tried, of course, chicken turkey, which you can see. Um, but if I can find something different, I've did bison recently just because I know you and I have talked about bison burgers and bison meat and stuff like that. It was just, you know, just trying new things with it. I'll, I'll make the sauce super spicy just for fun. But the, most of the stuff I'm trying new with it aren't really new. They're stuff that people have been doing forever. It just means I've felt like doing it. And it's one of those things when I go back to my traditional recipes, if I feel like changing it for the night or I'm looking for a certain flavor that night, then maybe I will. But that's mostly at home. I won't do a lot of those experiments at work. I like to try to keep the traditional stuff a little more traditional. And then I use my specials and stuff like that for stuff I'm not used to cooking. Like I'll try different recipes that way and do and fun that way. What's been your most adventurous special? Recently? That's hard because uh, I haven't been doing a lot of specials recently after the pandemic. And with the pandemic, there were no specials. That's true. It was just it was just to-go food for a long time at, at, yeah. at the place I was working. And uh, the hard part was when I got my first head Jeff job was only six months before the pandemic. Yeah. Oh, wow. So I was – and it was right before the holidays. So I was in full mode of getting everything set, ready – you know, getting to know the staff, getting my menus. Then we were right into the holidays and then it was all just get everything out. And then right when the holidays ended, we hit what Valentine's day. Mm -hmm. And that's usually the end of the holiday cycle for every restaurant I've ever worked in. And then once I was over, I took off on vacation for a week 
came back uh, that first week of March and it was pandemic time when we shut down, shut down three days after I got back. So I never really got to really dive into like full special, my mode, do my own food. And then we were to go for two years pretty yeah. much. And uh, we tweaked the whole menu so that it was a little bit more simpler and easier. And we turned the restaurant into a burger joint every Monday night and just to make some extra money to keep my staff on board. And yeah, but those were the best burgers in town. They were really good. <laughs> I want to do them. I want to do them at Pangea, but uh, Pangea is one of the best burgers in SAC, and I'm, I can't really touch it. So yeah, I think it's one burger battle. What two, maybe three times three or times something? Three believe. times? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, my wife's best friend Pangea is one of her favorite spots, and so I said, "Oh, you should text her and ask her any questions." And she didn't have a question, but she did say that her father-in-law, who lives in the Bay Area, dreams of the Pangea burger and comes up, drives up here just to eat the burger and apparently said he's tried to recreate it at home and just can't, it can't make it happen. It's, it's a solid burger. It really is. And, and I'm not a guy that goes out and looks for burgers and stuff like that. But even before I started working there, I've been eating that burger for years. It's one of, it was one of my favorites in town. And that's kind of why I took the job. I was like, yeah, I'll go there. I, I can revamp this and do some more menu expansions and a little bit funner stuff than you guys are used to, but that burger's good. <laughs> That's, and it's simple. It really is a simple burger. I think that's why it's so good. Probably. There's yeah. no frills, no extra stuff, just nice, nice and easy. Good cheddar cheese, yep. a good meat patty that we get made, you know, local bun, and then just tomatoes, lettuce, pick, house-made pickles, and, and red onions. Simple. Yep. So let's go back. Tell us a little bit more about your your path to where you are today. So you, you started Hook and Ladder, just volunteer prep cook, and then you got hired on. What, what was sort of your path through Sacramento from there? So I worked there for a few years uh, under probably one of my best mentors, Brian Meisner, who was the head chef at the time. Uh, he's now with the Sacramento Kings. He's the head chef for the players now, which is a really cool That's job. That's a pretty sweet gig. Yeah, like I was like, <laughs> if you ever want to retire, I'll take that job. Uh, but after that, I rolled over to Hawks Provisions and Public House. I mm -hmm. worked there for about a year and a half, two years. Um that was a lot of fun. Learned a lot. That's where like real high end fine dining kind of started getting into my life. Like uh, the expectations on the food that go out there are really elevated and you can see it in the product and that's why they got a great customer base. And there's a lot of people there all the time, both locations. And that's why uh, the wet Hawks and Granite Bay is now 15 years. Yeah. Uh, they just, they're celebrating their anniversary this week. So. And public uh, house just got the Michelin recognition. Michelin, yeah. 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 It's, I mean, the food standard that comes out of there is really good and, I learned a lot. That's where I learned a lot. And then uh, after that, I, I became the sous chef at Grange Catering and Banquets. And I did that for about nine months. And that was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. Uh, mm. Nine months of hell. <laughs> uh, limited staff, you know, doing six, seven days a week, just to open to close kind of deals, trying to get out food morning, noon and night and all these different banquets. It, I would not wish it or dream it on any of my worst enemies. So just one of those hells. And then from there, I took a month off just because I needed it. And then uh, I got a call from Camden Spent Launder to come help him out just part-time. And that turned into a full-time gig for a few months. And once I got going there, I, got, I applied for Taylor's Kitchen. And I was their head chef for two and a half years. Oh, wow. Um, up until January of this year. And then I left them, took a couple weeks off. And then Pangea called me and asked if I wanted to come take over that restaurant. So I want to go back a little bit just so people can hear. Can you explain the differences of being a banquet chef versus an everyday chef like at a restaurant and just compare and contrast that? Because it is wildly different. And I don't think people realize that. All right, so banquet chefs, I mean, my experience at least, uh, you do 1,200 covers in a day and it's you, maybe one or two other cooks and that's it. 
you would start off doing breakfast for 800 people in the morning with burritos and eggs and bacon and all the accoutrement, just everything you can think of, potatoes and stuff. That would be done. You would get about a two-hour break in between to prep up for the lunch shift because the lunch banquets would all start rolling in. And when you got, uh, you know, you could fit five to 600 people in the hotel at a time in different banquet rooms, you would have to do, you know, different continental style lunches. You would do Mexican lunch or an Italian lunch or just sandwiches. And that's all being made by three people. That's it. And then you would get done with that. And then it would be an hour or two break. And then you would start working on the night stuff where it would be, uh, you know, brace short ribs for 200 wedding guests upstairs. And then you would have downstairs at three other banquets house, you'd be doing a Mexican dinner while you're doing that. So, and you would be cooking five to six different styles of cuisine in one day, in one shift. And it's just the absolute horror of it is you got to take all that food and you're in a basement, pack it all up and get it to a seventh, eighth, ninth, whatever floor you're on, and then plate it up there. Mm. And you got to do it while it's still hot. <laughs> You got to keep it hot. So you're playing. There's no warmers up in those banquet rooms. You're going into the, just a, a almost a little, tent. Yeah, a tent or somebody. They decided to take the the one hotel room that was connected to it and gut it, and that's your little prep room. And you're sending stuff out, or you're in a hallway. Literally, the hallway you walk between the two. You set up a couple foldable tables, and you're just plating. And it's got to look as good as the restaurant food coming out because yeah. that's what they're expecting. So we, if you've ever eaten at Grange or you've ever eaten at one of those really nice hotels, the food comes out of there. It's gorgeous. So you got to have it look as close to that as possible when you're trying to serve it. And you're still doing it with two to three people. And sometimes it's by yourself on one floor. One of your other cooks on a different floor doing the exact same thing. And another cook on a different part of that floor doing the same thing. And then you got servers trying to help you plate because we're trying to get the food out as quick as possible. And you're just, you're, well, you want to pull your hair out. I mean, it's funny because like I made some friends through that area, but while we were there, we probably all hated each other. But when we all <laughs> left, we all went, that was not us. It was that. Yeah. That's what turned it. I mean, you and I, yeah, we hated each other. Yeah. Range. And then we worked at Camden together and we're like, dude, that was the, that place just, it killed you. Yeah. It physically <laughs> and mentally killed you. And I was going through some hard times at home at the time, and it just I, – I literally burnt myself out completely mm. in nine months like to the point where I didn't even know what I was going to do with my life. I, I told my boss on December 1st, I was like, I'm going to get you through the 30th, and I'm done. So I got him through the holidays. In January 1, I was, I was just at home. No more job, no nothing, just trying to help my wife out through some stuff. And yeah. uh, I was like, I don't know if I want to go back in the kitchen anymore. And I took a couple of weeks off and then I was like, no, I want to go back in the kitchen. I go, that was not what it was supposed to be like. And it's also such a different environment. Like you're, you're cooking, you know, 1200 fillets. You're, yeah. you're not actually cooking what the people are actually ordering at that moment. Yeah. Uh, it's totally different. Yeah. But yeah, that is where actually you and I met. Yeah. Yep. I was, I was one of the servers running around with my head cut off. Yeah. Helping me <laughs> plate up food, but we're just, we're both just like angry at the time. And it's right. just like. It, work should never be that way. And I always loved cooking so much that that was the one layer where I was like, I can't stand this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Why would I ever want to do this? And then I realized after being away from it, it was just that. Mm. Because even the hardest times at all my other restaurants, it was never that bad. And what's bad is my friend, one of my closest friends, hired them to help me there. And she took the job from me when I left. Oh, man. Yeah. And I forewarned her. And she, but she had a little different situation. They ended up giving her a a job out in LA as a head of a hotel oh, uh, cool. restaurant. So she's, she did good out there for a little while, but she left that after a while too as well. Yeah. I mean, that's also a, 
a learning experience of learning what you do like versus yeah. what you don't like. Uh, what other experiences have you had in kitchens that have kind of lead you one way or the other, either positive or negative? I think working at Hawks and with the crew I worked with there, I realized how much I actually liked fine dining, how much I liked to be. I, and I'm not going to say I was ever the best or great at it. And I had times where I was spinning because it's a whole different beast, you know, trying to cook Wagyu steaks and stuff like that. And you, in your brain, you're like, I can't mess this up. This is mm -hmm. a piece of meat. You yeah. know, I don't want to ruin this. And you're just getting started. You're thinking like I was what, 37, 38 when I'm doing this, like I got to make sure this is just right. And you spin and you spin, but you start realizing when it's done that the food you were putting out was so awesome. And the stuff I was learning there and how to do it and just the, you know, different things where like, you know, I'm sitting at a grill at Hook and Ladder and every other place, you got these big fat tongs, you're grabbing the meat, throwing it, but at Hawks, I had to use tweezers. You had to use tweezers to get the meat off the grill. You never use tongs. There's no tongs in that whole kitchen. So you learn these finer nuances of why you're doing it, what's it for, and like the sauces you would make and the next step. Like there's all these base sauces that you've made in every restaurant you ever worked, but when you work at places like Camden or Hawks and stuff, you start learning what those sauces can become even better and how to do them even better and, you know, how to how to make that steak taste just a little bit better than what you're getting everywhere else. And it was just fun. And I, I still miss it to this day to do the fine dining. And I know I'll probably get back into fine dining one of these days, but – so I'm trying to bring it home. I'm doing a lot more like playing at home, trying to recreate the fine dining for my family and stuff like that. Cause I never did it for them. Really. I was always just, I'm just going to cook what I want, but now I'm like, all right, we're going to make this look pretty and I'm going to plate this up just right. That's fun. Yeah. You mentioned you've been at Pangea since January. So what, and we talked about the burger and how that was sort of sacred and you kept up the same. What changes have you got to make at Pangea? What's, what's been exciting to go there and, and revamp for you? So the biggest thing was like I got there and they over the pandemic they cut the menu down to almost like five items. There was no more mac and cheese, no more pulled pork, like all the comfort foods that people liked there. You you still had your burger, your nachos, your fried chicken, a couple salads and stuff like that. So that was the first thing I did is like I brought mac and cheese back. I do it's not the old school Pangea, it's kind of my own. I do a five cheese mac and cheese and then uh I brought back pulled pork sandwiches, barbecue pulled pork sandwiches and so you can add it all to everything else. We put a shrimp taco on the menu. We had a um, BLT up until last week. I pulled that off for, for a little while just because some staffing stuff, but it might be coming back. We're bringing mussels back next week. We did mussels and fries for a while. I gave it a two-week break, and uh, we're going to do some chorizo and mussels starting next week mm. and stuff like that. So it's more revamping and trying to build that menu just slowly so I'm not overpowering all my cooks like, hey, here's 20 new things on the menu. <laughs> Good luck. Let's do this. Um, so I've been slowly incorporating one dish here, one dish here, and just – trying to get them used to like actual volume again and moving because we're a lot busier than they've ever been used to because of the pandemic. But everybody came out. Everybody's been coming out. And I think with everybody staying home from work and working from home, they've been going out eating a lot more. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing it in a lot of the restaurants. They're getting – the good ones are getting packed really quick and on weird nights and stuff like that. You're not getting your usual like Thursday night slowness. You're getting your Thursday night rush. Tuesday it's, nights. Yeah. I don't know why. Tuesday nights have been popping this summer. See, our, us, it's Wednesdays. Wednesdays are becoming bigger and bigger every day that it's uh it's nuts, but those have been fun. And then they've been kind of let me do some specials. So I did Papa Deli dish a couple weeks ago. I did some gnocchi a few weeks ago as well. I think I'm going to try to do some poke bowl and I'll eat poke bowl this mm. weekend. Uh, that's kind of my thought process right now. So I get, I get a little freedom to do specials and little things here and there, wherever I want, as long as I don't change the burger and the nachos and keep those standard in the fried chicken sandwich. Because that's what people, a lot of people come there for. And then yeah. when they see my specials, like, ooh, that sounds good. I mean, we did oysters on half shell like two to three months ago for a beer night. 
So it was kind of fun where we were doing porters and oysters. What kind of culture do you try to create in the kitchen as a head chef? I mean, you kind of, you came into cooking a little bit later. We were joking around before we got into the meat of the podcast about sort of the fun, jocular, sometimes crass nature of the kitchen, but the the camaraderie in there. At the same time, you may have worked places that were, I know you mentioned one nightmare particular situation, right? But but as someone who came into the career at a different age, right? You weren't an 18-year-old dishwasher that it's all you've ever known. What sort of culture do you try to create in your kitchen now as a head chef? So I, I base a lot of my culture off my first head chef, Brian, over at Hook. He was relaxed, chilled, no screaming, no yelling. Like, he did not like that kind of stuff. He, I, I, out of the four years I worked for him, I saw him lose his temper once. And it was everybody kind of went, that's justifiable. I can't believe it took this long to actually see, like, that side of him. But he talked it out. We laugh. We joke. The work could get stressful at the time you're doing it. So if you can joke about it and have a little fun. I mean, my cooks right now, the first thing we pretty much say to each other when we walk in is I – fucking hate you. That's how we <laughs> greet each other. I'm like, I fucking, oh, I fucking hate you too. And then it's like a hug and a, all right, let's get to work. And then we all have fun and joke and, you know, talk about some of the stupidest things you'll ever hear about. Um, and I can't believe we get on these subjects, but they just come out of somebody's mouth and then we go off on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I try to keep that environment really light, really fun. I mean, I try to say cooking's supposed to be fun. Why do kitchens not make it fun? Because there's usually somebody angry that wants to yell and scream, and you don't need that kind of environment in your life. I'm a grown man. I don't want anybody yelling and screaming at me. Yeah. I go, and the people that work for me are all grownups. I don't need to yell and scream at them either. If I have a problem with them or something goes wrong, we can talk it out rationally like grown adults and not yell and scream like we're in the military because it's not the military. Right. So – and it keeps people happy. I got guys right now that are working for me that say, dude, if you ever decide to do anything else outside of this, we're following you. And it's because you keep them happy. And if you can keep them happy and light, light-footed, light they'll do almost anything for you. Especially key right now is it's hard to find and keep people in the restaurant industry right now. So, yeah, those, those chefs yeah. that are... Uh, I'm hoping it'll change. I mean, the unfortunate part is that it is going to change because people keep closing their doors. So those cooks mm-hmm. keep getting shuffled out. But what's also going to do is it's going to nix all the bad cooks because bad cooks are getting pushed away to jobs that no one else would want to cook would ever take. Yeah, the toxic ones are getting pushed out. And I can personally attest being a server with you in the kitchen as well. Like I, I've told you multiple times, hey, let me know what you're doing. Like I, I'm always listening to another job offer. <laughs> just don't listen to this episode, Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Oliver, I'm taking them. Uh, no, yeah, I just – if you keep it fun, and I've, you've seen me, I joke around. I, it's a blast. The kitchen's a blast. It's a whole bunch of people just cooking food. And my mom was that way in the kitchen. We always had fun. We had loud music playing while we while we cooked. And it was just, that was the fun part of it. And it should be that way while we're growing up. It's almost like, I always equate it like baseball players. Like, I get to play a game for a living. I get to cook for a living. That's it. I mean, I get to just sit there and make food. And I get and if it's an open kitchen, get to watch people eat it and smile and be happy and they're, they're celebrating something, hopefully having a good time. And occasionally you'll get the person that's not celebrating something, eating food. But you know what? Hopefully my food made it better. <laughs> I, I love that. I mean, that's, that's I mean, really why I, as someone who, you know, has worked in restaurants some but wanted to kind of go into talking about food because that's that's how it was for me. I mean, both my parents were good cooks and like that, that combination of the camaraderie in the kitchen, it's, it's fun to hear a chef talk about bringing that into the commercial kitchen. And then making people, I mean, what's better than making people happy? I mean, I've removed most vices from my life, you know, the really unhealthy ones, other than a good meal. And it's, it still makes me feel good when I'm sad. It makes me feel better when I just 
it, it just has an amazing connective power for people. And I think having that in the kitchen is how you put out good food as well. And I uh, think I think if you actually are a cook, I, th- I recommend every cook work in an open kitchen so you can watch that. If you can see it, if you're stuck in a back room trying to do the cook, you're never going to see that. But once you see it, it's it's amazing. It's like when I worked at Hawks, like it's an open kitchen. You would watch people. There would be celebrations. People cheers and people would come up to us and just thank us. That's – I mean – what the funny was is they would come to me because I was the oldest person in the kitchen and hey, here's, hey, chef, you did a great job. And I wasn't the head chef. <laughs> I didn't see my head chef kind of go, why do they always come to you? I was like, because I am 20 years older than you, buddy, and I'm gray already because of working here. <laughs> and he would laugh about it. But he's like, good, you can talk to him. I don't have to. <laughs> but that's the joy, though, is like you get to see it. If you get to actually see it or work a catering event while you're open and, and these people are really happy and you're putting out food and they're like, dude, this is really good. I love it. You're now a part of that event. So I've been a part of marriage proposals. I've been a part of weddings. I mean, I've got to see all this stuff. And my food was part of their memory. Yeah. They might not know who I am, but I know they know my food. It's art. And I've never been upset looking at art. You know, you, you take a good bite of something, you're never going to be angry at it. No. Oh, that, was a ter- that was a great grilled cheese. I'm mad now. <laughs> no one has ever said that. No. Yeah. I had a good grilled cheese yesterday. I went to the rind. Oh, the rind is good. The the triple brie D. Yeah, that's nice too. So I want to go back a little bit. Uh, Since you did take the unorthodox route into the kitchen, what has been your greatest challenge in the kitchen? So a few of them is like the first thing was I I had to keep up with the 18-year-olds, the 16, 17, 18, the youngest guys in the kitchen, the youngest people. I had to move like they did because if I didn't move like they did, no one was going to take me seriously. I had to move faster. I had to pick up things quicker because I was the old guy trying to catch up to them. And then I had to be ahead of them because the minute I was able to do something, people started depending on me before them, even though I got guys that have worked in kitchens longer than I have working for me right now. I have to be ahead of them at all times. That's the biggest challenge is making sure that I'm not stepping back and not pursuing what I want to do more and more because I'm 43 years old. I got about another 12, 15 years left before I'm out of a kitchen completely. You know, these guys got another 20 to 30 years left. So I got to make sure I stay ahead of them or else I'm never going to have my job. I'm going to go back. And nobody wants a 50-year-old a guy coming in to work their kitchen as a, a line cook. So uh, that's that's my biggest challenge is just trying to keep up. I had to move faster. I mean, I was 300 pounds at the time when I started cooking mm. ladder. I had, they, my, my nickname was Scooter. still is. That's why. I was scooting my feet through that kitchen. But you know what? I didn't stop. I kept going. It's still a joke to this day with a couple of the guys I still hang out with and talk to. Like, we laugh about it just because I, I was not ready for what I was about to get into, but I kept going because I knew I was better there than where I was at my old job. Yeah. And happier. Happier. And I was only making minimum wage at the time. I was, I was 35 years old, just left a corporate salary job for minimum wage. And I was like, I'm going to make this work. I'm going to work my ass off so I'm not making minimum wage anymore. And by the time I got to Hawks, I wasn't making minimum wage anymore. And then... By the time I got to Grange, I was salary again. That's an impressive eight-year run to go from that to, all, to now running. I mean, you've run two of two of the more iconic restaurants in town between Taylor's and now Pangea. Yeah. Good for yeah. you. And sorry to hear the Taylor's just closed. That's a sad day. Uh, but, yeah, I had to learn a kitchen. And the reason I did all that was I want to own my own restaurant. I always have. Even when I was in sales, I always wanted my own restaurant. But I watched people open restaurants that had no business opening a restaurant because they had no clue and fail miserably. Mm. Um, I would go in there and sell them beer or soda or whatever, and they would just fizzle out in seven to 10 months, gone. 
And I'm like, there goes their whole life savings, their retirement, yeah. everything's mm-hmm. gone. I'm like, I'm not doing that. So I can run a front of the house. I go, I could talk. I can, I mean, I was in sales and marketing. I have a degree in it. I'm like, I don't, I need to know how to do the actual kitchen. So the goal was always work here for 10 years, do it, open a restaurant after 10 years in the kitchen. And so hopefully in a couple of years, I'll get my own. That's yeah. What, what, cool. what concept would you go with? <sighs> Sushi? <laughs> <laughs> no way, dude. I'm not going to try to even get into that boat. Uh, more uh, higher end pub. Okay. I think when I was at Hawks at that time with the chef, we were a gastro pub and we did a lot of fun, different culture foods, just changing constantly. And I loved every minute of it. I don't know if I'll be that high end. I'd rather be a little step down, more approachable for the whole family to come in on a constant basis, not just for special occasions, but that kind of style, like, you know, keep a good burger, a little better meat than what, you know, most people use maybe and going with a handmade pasta special every week and a couple other things, good fish you know, have fun, but still have like grilled bread with some dips and like hummus and stuff like that. Some flatbreads and stuff like that. Just small though. I would love to open it in the pocket or land park somewhere in that area towards more towards the pocket just because that's where I live and I can stay home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let me know when you open up that concept. Yeah, you can, you can work. <laughs> I don't know if I'll work though. At that point, I might just come in and just have my own little chair there with a little plaque like this Neil's chair. Have his own beer mug with his name on it. There we go. <laughs> You mentioned, you know, sort of how you, you had to work extra hard, but we talked a little bit about personality as well. How much do you attribute that quick rise through the industry to being, to just your personality and maybe ease and being able to work with people and sort of make connections and, you know, someone has to want you to come in and trust you to run their kitchen and also want to work with you as a head chef to give you that opportunity. So I think my biggest thing was like, I, I spent years in sales sales. I can walk into anything. I was supposed to sell them something. Now, I'm going to be honest, most sales reps are liars and just trying to get their their next dollar paid. Um, but it teaches you how to be a pupil person and how to actually talk to people. And as a chef, there's not a lot of chefs that are very good at front of the house stuff. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've worked two in my years. I mean, Oliver, Oliver uh, over at Camden Spit Lauder, he's great at hitting tables and touching them and talking to them and stuff like that. He understands that stuff. But if you can talk to people, they'll give you almost anything. And if you're brutally honest with them, they'll even give you more. Like you don't have to really like lie in this industry if you just talk to them. And so me being able to talk and actually communicate, that's a huge thing in a kitchen. If you can sit there and like, I jumped online this weekend and my sous chef goes, and he was in the middle. He was the one talking. He's like, no, you do it. I'm like, why? And he's like, you're so much better at me. I go, well, then learn it. I go, this is easy. If you can talk through these things and communicate, and I don't even need to look at the screen and stuff, and I can start, hey, make sure you got this going on, this, this, make sure you get this done next because we're going to work on that plate up next. And if you can communicate clearly and easily with everybody around you, they all love working for you because they don't have to think about anything. They just do what you tell them to do. And a lot of the guys I've ever worked with, I've always just been able to talk to. Now, some of the chefs, the cooks I've worked with, they're a little bit more introverted than I am. They kind of get a little off in that, but most of the time, most people love it. That's great. I mean, that's a great lesson for any 18, 20, 22 year old who's only worked in a kitchen and dreams of owning in a restaurant. It's like, learn how to schmooze, man. Learn how to talk to people. I'm, I'm a good cook. I love what I do and I can make some really good food, but I can talk. And you need to talk to your reps too. You got salespeople coming in constantly trying to get you to turn their stuff over to you and buy what they want. If you can't talk to them, they're going to take advantage of you. Yeah. They're going to make you pay more. So if you can talk to them and talk to the customers coming in, I have customers that came into Pangea when I first got there. I went out and just talked to them at the bar. They've been coming constantly asking where I'm at. What's the new special? How you been? How's the family? Kind of stuff like that. Those simple things, you get return customers. Return customers is what every restaurant needs. It's the thing that keeps you alive. 
Uh, new and you know that couple right. told every one of their friends to go see you, yeah. and then yeah. the snowball effect. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's something a lot of chefs could learn from. Like, what person doesn't want to feel like they have a personal connection with the person who's making the special food that's coming to the plate rather than just the server who's supposed to sell it, which is great, too. Having good front of house is important. But uh, if you can have people at a dinner party be able to say, I know the chef at Pangea, I know the chef at Camden, I, when really they just have talked to them at the table a number of times, it's like, that's, that's gold. Yeah. And what's fun, a, a little sneaky thing to fun to do is every once in a while, I'll just ask them what kind of food they like and what's their favorite little stuff outside of the restaurant. Then I try to incorporate it into a special a couple weeks later. But like, oh, you know what they were saying? They really like gnocchi. And you know what? I'll do a gnocchi special in a couple weeks. And you know what? They fly in. Uh -huh. They'll come in and eat. And I had a customer come in twice that week. <laughs> like, you had gnocchi? I didn't know you do gnocchi. I was like, yeah, remember you said you liked it. I thought it would be fun to do a special. I do gnocchi all the time. And now they were like, oh, I helped them make a special. That's right. <laughs> and absolutely. Like, and you're just really just trying to get them to come back to keep money flowing in so and it makes them happy they want yeah. to hear more absolutely it's all it takes all right so we're on to rapid fire questions first one what's your favorite cheap guilty pleasure food wise jack-in-the-box tacos <laughs> oh yes <laughs> sorry have a, you know a couple of those after a couple beers oh, i don't know why i just uh as long as I can remember since they came out, I've been eating those. And it's not like something I eat on a constant basis, but there's always that like, all right, I've had a couple of beers. Hey, babe, can you drive me over to Jack in the Box? Go get a couple tacos. <laughs> the, I, one, the one off Freeport near the police station? <laughs> yep, the one I go to too. So before I moved over there, I had met, like everywhere I've ever lived since they've been out, I know where the closest Jack in the Box was. <laughs> so when I've had a couple of beers, I'm like, let's go. And then they came out the little mini ones. Those no, I haven't tried the mini ones. They're really good, but really Don't do dangerous. It. Don't do it. Just keep <laughs> getting the big ones because the little ones, you can sit there and eat like three or four of the boxes of them, and they just pop like popcorn, and they're just deliciously tasty. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a Monday night. Where are you going for dinner tonight? My, Quick and easy with the family. See, it's yeah, Monday night's Ryan. Ryan's the only thing that's really open on Mondays. And okay. I love, their, I love their grilled cheeses. My daughter loves her. My wife, Ryan, is always there. Now, if I'm no, no family, I used to go to Rochambeau, go get a glass of wine, a little snack there. A little underrated, I mean, but they do this uh, bread service with always these different butters. Like last one I had was like an orange butter they did. It was really good. And it was just mm. bread, and I had a glass of wine, and it was perfect. I'm simple. Uh, when I go out by myself, I don't want a lot of food. I want something. Uh, if you have a tartare, I'm coming. I love tartare, and I'll critique you hard on your tartare because that's one of my favorite things in the world. Best tartare in town, then. I was just going to ask. Yours? Mine. You have one at Pangea? No, I did a special. We did it, and it sold well. Oh, I bet. Uh, but, yeah, I, I always think mine is. So so when's the next uh, Tartar special at Pangea? Right. Probably in a month or two. Well, we're we're going to need that text message yeah. when it does. Oh, right, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely send it to you. <laughs> What's the thing you wish you could go back in time and eat from your childhood? <sighs> Probably my grandma's lasagna. Mm. It was really good. We always only got it for holidays because it was a big production for her. But, yeah, Grandma's Lasagna back in the day was always amazing. Maybe that and my grandfather's uh, Lego Lamb Roast. He always did a Lego Lamb Roast for holidays as well. And that was something I still eat to this day. And it's just the memory of sitting around that table with the, with the pasta and the lamb and just, you know, the whole family there, my brothers, my uncles, everything. Just something that I always remember. And, there was always this drawer right by my grandfather. You open it up, there was cookies in it and stuff like that. It was just always in my head. Yeah. What TV show are you watching right now? Westworld. Westworld? Life, yeah, the new season. Okay. Like, we're still a couple episodes behind. Her and I don't get to watch a lot of TV together because she works all day and I work usually in the night. So by the time I get home, she's asleep. 
So I watch my own shows, but Westworld's always that. And if I'm not watching movies, shows with her, I'm I'm an anime dork. Okay. So mm. I watch a lot of anime. What's the cookbook you think everybody should have? I, to be honest, it's not a cookbook. It's uh, the Flavor Bible. Oh, yeah. I've got I mean, that. I mean, I'm going to be honest. If you're into cooking, that's the one you should have because it's fun to kind of pair up ingredients. And it's just this big encyclopedia of what's what and what pairs with it. They're kind of expensive. I think it's like an $8 yeah, it's a, book. Yeah, it's a thick book. Yeah, but It's big. And, I mean, you can be like, you know what? I got blueberries and broccoli sitting in my fridge. What should I do with it? And you can pair them both up. And it'll, if you use the book right, you can pair up like five other ingredients and make something with it. It is. It's rad. Yeah, you're, you're right. If you're someone who likes to cook but feels like you don't exactly know how to get more adventures than a recipe, yeah, exactly. It's it, it's a way to get out of just cooking recipes. It's yeah. starting to think on your own how to cook something. I've shown it to every cook I've ever – all young cooks. I'm like, dude, if you got a chance, buy this. You looking it up? Right? I absolutely. I'm looking <laughs> it up. Right now. It? I've no. I, I okay. I've seen it, but I don't own it. Yeah, yet. it's a good one. It's yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. Well, Scott McCumber, thank you so much for being on the Dine One Six. It was really great to have you today. Thanks for having me. I had a pleasure. You know, we talked at the beginning about Scott's journey into becoming an executive chef, but what I liked about him is we've talked to a lot of chefs like. His love of cooking has, was kind of a through line all the way through his work today. Sometimes you have chefs who start so early and they get so into the technical aspect of cooking and they're really, really good. But Scott is just like a killer home cook at heart that now runs a restaurant. And I really love that about his style and his cooking. The other thing I also appreciate is that with his unorthodox way to get into the kitchen is that he was an adult when he finally got in there, so he values the communication on how to treat people. And I don't think he created a lot of the bad habits. Maybe not bad habits, but not the best moral approaches to working with other people. And I appreciate the approach that he has. The other thing I appreciate about him, not only his burger, but his tartare, which I am very much looking forward to. So that's going to be a lot of fun to go try that. Yeah, we will definitely throw that up on our social media. Whenever he he said he would send us a text when that tartare goes on as a special, and we'll make sure to relay that message. So that brings us to the point of the show where we always remind you, if you like this episode, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or follow the show. You can follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. Both handles are at Dine16. And this isn't just my show and Neil's show. This is your show. So if you have guests that you want to hear, if you have ideas for the show, Reach out to us through email. It's max at dine16.com and send us a note. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you want to hear. You can share all the episodes or listen to them just on our website, dine16.com. And you can also hear them on YouTube now if that's where you like to listen to your podcasts. And please, 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 if you like this episode, if you like what we're doing, share this episode with your friends. That's the best way to grow the podcast. You can leave a review in Apple Podcasts as well. That helps. But really, the best way you can help us out is just shoot an email with the link to our website to a friend or family who you think would like this episode. It'll be right at the top of the website there. Our opening and closing theme music are by my brother-in-law, Mark Owens. The Dine One Six is a production of the Hear Me Now studio right here in Sacramento. We'll be back next week with a brand new interview and a new episode. We've got a whole bunch of interviews lined up, so we should have new episodes for you week by week as the rest of the year continues. And so until next week, as always, eat something you love with someone you love. Mm